You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode six. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. On this episode of the show, we're talking with Monica Bond. Monica is the principal scientist and co-founder of the Wild Nature Institute, a nonprofit organization that is committed to the preservation of wild nature through research, advocacy, and education. The Wild Nature Institute is currently focused on ungulate conservation and research in East Africa, and we worked closely with the group to produce two Eyes on Conservation videos about different components of this work. Our video, The Maasai Giraffe, focuses on their giraffe research and conservation program, and our video, The Forgotten Migration, focuses on the importance of one particular migration corridor for a unique population of wildebeest, zebra, and many other ungulate species. This episode is a bit longer than any of our previous shows, simply because there was so much good information that we wanted to get in here. Monica has some really amazing stories about working in this remote corner of Tanzania, and she has a very important message to share about the conservation of these truly unique East African ecosystems. We couldn't be happier to have her on the show, so let's get right to that interview. On the program today, Monica Bond, who is the principal scientist and co-founder of the Wild Nature Institute, which is a nonprofit organization committed to the preservation of wild nature. How are you, Monica? I'm wonderful and really excited to be talking with you, Matthew. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for coming on the program. So um, let's just start things out by sort of having you give us a breakdown of of what the Wild Nature Institute is and what your inspiration for... uh, helping found the organization was. Okay, great. But first, I wanted to just say thank you so much to WildLens for um, working with us on making some excellent short documentaries about our work, and it's been really, really helpful. And now I'll talk a little bit about what we do. Um, The Wild Nature Institute is, um, basically, we do science, education, and advocacy for the preservation of wild nature. And we use the term wild nature. Um, we, Derek and I are uh, my, the, another co-founder of the organization. We really believe in this concept of wild nature, which is um, places in the world that are relatively untouched and not destroyed by human hand. And these places are really important for us um, both, you know, sort of a spiritual inspiration, um, but also as scientists to understand the way the world is supposed to work um, in areas that have not been destroyed by human activities. And this is really important to us. Um, Basically, we both Derek and I have a really strong connection to the natural world all of our lives. And um, E.O. Wilson suggested that this connection to the natural world is wired into our genetic code. And I really agree with that. It makes perfect sense evolutionarily that we should be obsessed with observing and understanding wild nature because really for the past two million years or so, that's how we as a species survived as hunters and gatherers. It was important for us to understand things like how weather patterns influenced the availability of water and the migration of wildlife and where and when bees would make honey and when, where and when we can find roots and tubers and berries and things like that. These are all um, phenomena that were critical to our very survival as humans. And so I believe it's the most natural thing in the world that we would be obsessed with understanding wild nature um, and also protecting it because it's <laughs> fundamental to our survival. But unfortunately, I think we also may be breeding this curiosity out of us because um, people, and especially children these days, we spend a lot of time in front of the television and in front of the computer, and we're allowing industrial machinery to grow our food for us, and we're not really so connected to the outdoors anymore. And so it really makes the profession of wildlife biology and understanding wildlife and its place in the world really important right now. And um, so basically, that's one of the reasons why we use the word wild nature and, it's, and why we believe it's really important to understand uh, and conduct research in wild nature. But then, of course, the, the next step is to protect it. And that's where our ed- education and advocacy come in. And 
basically we're very connected to wild nature in ways that humans are only beginning to understand. And we're destroying wild nature without respecting how much we depend on it. We depend on wild nature for the water we drink, the air we breathe, the soil that grows our food. So it's important to learn how all of the different species together contribute to the health of the world we all live in. And so that's why we've dedicated our lives to this. And it's at the core of what we're trying to do is understanding how life on Earth works. And we were inspired to found the Wild Nature Institute because we wanted to um, have our be able to make our own decisions as to the research questions we wanted to pursue and how we were going to answer those questions and as to the um, the ways we were going to bridge the gap between science and management of natural resources, how we were going to apply our science towards the best way to protecting wild nature. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think, I mean, uh, all of us at Wild, uh, at Wild Lens here definitely share a lot of those, um, a lot of those feelings that, that, that you mentioned. And, and I love that uh, reference to E.O. Wilson in there. Um, but yeah, just in general, you know, sort of exploring the, the, the roles and sort of the interactions between human communities and wildlife communities, I think, is, is extremely important, and it's especially now where we're sort of losing that, um, as, as you talked about. Um, so I kind of want to delve into, you know, uh, uh, at, at least a lot of the work. I know that you guys have some, uh, the Wild Nature Institute has um, some research programs going on outside of Africa, but it seems like your focus, um, you know, since founding the organization um, has really been in, in East Africa. Um, and so I guess I'm wondering what the inspiration uh, for that focus was and, uh, you know, what it was like sort of uh, uh, getting these research projects uh, up and going uh, in, okay. in East Africa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, East Africa is a veritable mecca for wildlife biologists like us. It is one of the richest places on the planet for diversity of um, all sorts of kinds of wildlife, amphibians, and um, but especially for large mammals. You know, we all hear about these great migrations, the great migration of wildebeest and zebras and gazelles in the Serengeti. Uh, this is where it all happens. So um, kind of taking a, a bigger step back and understanding why we picked this area, um, it is it is perhaps one of the richest places on the planet um, for this kind of wildlife diversity. And it's really when you go to East Africa, to the savannas of East Africa, it's like stepping back in time a million years. You have these mega fauna that used to exist all around the planet and really are, are now just remaining um, for the most part in sub-Saharan Africa. Things like rhinoceroses and elephants and giraffes and these really large mega herbivores um, that are really critical to the ecosystem. You see them still in Africa and it's partly because um, you had major climactic changes um, in other places around the world that, that weren't really affecting um, the sub-Saharan Africa uh, the way it was. You know, you had, you had ice ages and that kind of thing. So it's really like stepping into a time where it's really, really cool for wildlife biologists. Um, and also, it has really, um, because the Tanzania where we work, um, especially in the Great Rift Valley, which is the area that we work in in northern Tanzania. The Great Rift Valley stretches from from Jordan all the way down to Mozambique. It's sort of a geological trench, and it's very famous because this is where humanity evolved. Um, and it's also got a lot of these uh, amazing diversity of of large mammals. So the the Serengeti is and the Ngorongoro ecosystem is very famous for having this great migration of wildebeests and zebras and gazelles and we all watch our, our nature programs and we see this on there. But actually the Terengiri ecosystem in the Gregory uh the, the the Risk Valley there also has its own great migrating herds and it's its own separate ecosystem from the Serengeti and Gorongoro. But it's lesser known and it's under great threat from human activities. Um, the Terengiri National Park and Lake Vinyara National Park are kind of at the core of this ecosystem where we work. And they're the, um, the area where the wildlife migrate um, has not been fully protected. So they migrate far outside the park during the, the wet season. 
and they go through these wildlife, uh, the zebras and the wildebeest and the gazelles and oryxes and elands go out into village lands that are unprotected. And for hundreds of years, these areas were dominated mostly by the Maasai people who also have a very nomadic lifestyle, quite similar to the wildebeest. They uh, migrate in search of forage for their cattle and in search of water um, during the seasons. And they make it a point to not kill wildlife. They depend upon their cows. They eat their cows. Cows are their lives. And so um, they think it's beneath them to kill and eat the wildlife. So in areas where the, the Maasai were the dominant tribe, you still have a lot of um, really rich diversity and abundance of wildlife species. And unfortunately, that's changing now in the Terengiri ecosystem. You have people coming from all around Tanzania to settle down around Terengiri National Park and to farm. And then you have these other tribes are also people that kill the wildlife. They, they um, poach the wildlife for meat. So now you have a lot of conflicts um, with the human settlement around the parks and with the wildlife. So um, we decided to work in this region because it is so rich in large mammals, but it's also very threatened and it needs help. Um, and there's not a lot of people actually working in this area. A lot of the research that's being done is being done in the Serengeti and Gorongoro, which is nearby, but it's a completely separate ecosystem. The wildebeest that migrate um, in and out of Terengeti and Lake Manyara National Parks are different genetically for the ones that migrate in the Serengeti and Gorongoro ecosystem. So when you lose the Terengeti wildebeest, for example, you're going to lose perhaps a, a different species. So it needs our help, um, and the giraffe there, it's, it's one of the most important areas for giraffe in, um, in Tanzania, and so um, this area is in dire need of, of help and research and understanding what's going on there. So that's why we stepped in to work in that region. Gotcha, gotcha. So I, I guess I'm wondering how you and, and Derek and other folks at the Wild Nature Institute sort of became aware of this ecosystem that is sort of facing this, um, this, this threat. Um, had you guys spent time in, in Africa before? Um, you know, what was sort of the process of like uh, sort of seeking out um, the, this particular research site early on? So, okay, um, that's a good question. So Derek, 20 years ago, Derek lived in Kenya for a year and traveled around East Africa and fell in love with the region. And so he's always kept tabs on, on what's going on in East Africa. Uh, and then we both went there together back in 2007. We actually went to Uganda. Um, which, you know, it was in there, it was in that area that I actually fell in love with giraffes. Um, it was one of my favorite animals to see. And so I became aware of what was going on um, in the East Africa region in terms of um, savannah and the problems with human wildlife con conflicts and, and so on. So we'd always been aware and we'd always wanted to go back and work in Africa just because, like I said, it's just a mecca for wildlife biologists. It's a really, really incredible place to, to live and to work. Um, and we had just known, it's known, that, um, that the, there are problems in the greater Terengiri ecosystem. So this is, um, there was a paper in 2008 um, by our colleagues at Dartmouth College, Tom Morrison and Doug Bulger, about this region and why it was so important um, for, for the diversity and abundance of large mammals, but also how threatened it was. So we had a colleague who was working on wildebeest in this region, and he was testing out um, this pattern recognition software that we're now using to study giraffes. And so that's sort of how we um, got interested in continuing working in this region and continuing working on wildlife conservation in this region that was started by um, Dr. Bolger and Dr. Morrison from Dartmouth College, who are colleagues of ours. Gotcha. Fantastic. Fantastic. So I kind of want to delve into, um, you mentioned giraffes and how you uh, sort of fell in love with giraffes on that trip to Uganda. Um, I kind of want to delve into your uh, 
the Wild Nature Institute's Giraffe Conservation Project, um, and this is the 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 project that um, we sort of feature in uh, one of the two short films that we produced in collaboration with Wild Nature Institute, the Maasai Giraffe. Um, so let's just kind of dive into that. Is this um, is is this research still ongoing? And could you kind of just give me a breakdown on you know what what you guys are doing and what you're hoping to accomplish there? Sure, absolutely. So this is a joint project between Wild Nature Institute and Dartmouth College. And Dartmouth developed that um, Wild ID pattern recognition software that we're using to monitor individual giraffes. But let, let me take a step back really quickly and talk um, brief background about giraffes in general. So giraffes are um, really an African icon. They are not found anywhere else in the world except for sub-Saharan Africa. You know, there's there's Asiatic lions, there's Asiatic elephants, there's um, gazelles and other kinds of antelopes, but there's nothing in the world like a giraffe anywhere else um, besides in sub-Saharan Africa. And so we really kind of consider it an African icon. It, um, it's really beloved around the world. It's very instantly recognizable. Nobody can mistake a giraffe for any other kind of animal. It's the tallest animal in the world by far, um, towering more than five meters high. It's a really great example of um, what evolution, um, how it shapes a species, <laughs> how it shapes an animal. Um, so they have this you know, meter-long neck, uh, and which they use to uh, reach um, the, the nutritious leaves higher up in the, the canopy, the foliage higher up in the canopy than any other kind of browser. So it allows them to escape competition with other browsers. So they're a real good classic example of how evolution can shape uh, the morphological features of, of an animal. Um, they're also a great indicator of the health of East African savanna ecosystems. And I want to give a really quick example of a very cool study that was done in Kenya with um, a kind of acacia tree called the whistling thorn acacia. So um, the whistling thorn acacia, it makes these galls and produces nectar to attract a certain kind of ant to live on the tree. And that ant will defend the tree from browsers. So it'll, it'll come out, it'll live in the galls and, and eat the nectar. And then it comes out and stings and bites animals that try to browse it like the giraffe. And uh, the scientists up in Kenya made an exclosure where they blocked out the browsers, which are mainly giraffes, um, from eating on these trees. And what they thought is they thought it would increase the survival of these trees. What happened was without the browsing of the giraffes, the tree was not stimulated to produce the galls and the nectar. And those ants that defended the tree departed. And um, what happened was a different kind of ant invaded the tree uh, and it, this ant lives in holes made by wood-boring beetle larvae. So it attracted those wood-boring beetles, which created um, holes in the tree, and the trees weakened and died. So conversely, you'd think, oh, when you keep away browsers, it might um, increase the survival of the trees and be healthier for the trees. But in fact, those very browsers have, a, have an intricate, uh, complex relationship with the trees, such that when you excluded them, the trees died more often. Wow, so that's fascinating. It was a really incredible study that was done. It was one of the be- it was in, published in Science. And it was just one of the most interesting study as, uh, studies I've read in a long time. But it shows how important these browsers are to the ecosystem, um, and how giraffe can be an indicator of the health of these types of ecosystems, these acacia savanna ecosystems. So, giraffe are important. They're really cool. They're unique. They're different from anything else. Um, but despite this, they're declining precipitously all throughout Africa. And the IUCN Giraffe and Okapi Specialist Group has estimated that in the last 10 or 15 years, the giraffe population, wild giraffes, throughout Africa went from about 140,000 to about 80,000 now, and maybe even fewer than that um, at this point. So they've really taken a nosedive. And this is largely due to habitat loss, deforestation for um, things like making farms, and also deforestation for for uh, fuel wood. Uh, charcoal and cutting wood for charcoal is one of the um, main ways that uh, Tanzanians cook their their food. And so you have this really huge growing population of Tanzanians, and all of them are cutting trees for firewood. And so that's a really... Um, evident, obvious loss of uh, acacia trees for the giraffe. And then, of course, you have um, poaching, illegal poaching. And giraffe, unfortunately, are a favorite of poachers because it gives you a lot of meat for one animal. 
So even in our ecosystem alone, just in Terengiri, where we've estimated maybe two to 3,000 giraffes, uh, interviews with poachers suggest that perhaps 90 or so giraffe are killed every year by poaching. So wow. poaching, habitat loss, really big problems for giraffe throughout Africa, but um, also in our ecosystem. So, uh, and then the other thing I mentioned earlier was that the Terengiri ecosystem is fragmented. So the ecosystem itself actually stretches far beyond the boundaries of the protected national park. It goes through village lands um, and through private conservancies, hunting blocks. And so you have um, a lot of illegal poaching, hunting, and habitat loss that's affecting these animals, and it's reflected in their numbers declining. Um, so uh, we wanted to study giraffes um, and figure out what we can do to ensure conservation in this important region. So what we do is we use pattern recognition software to individually recognize each giraffe. Each giraffe has a unique spot pattern. It's like our thumbprint, and it's the same uh, pattern on their fur when they're born all the way to when they die. It doesn't change. So if we can get a photograph of a giraffe when it's a calf, and we do surveys three times a year where we go out and we take photos of every giraffe we see, and we run this computer program, it, it'll tell us whether we've seen that giraffe before or not. And it'll also, because we have a, a geographic location associated with it using a GPS, we can tell where those animals are moving around throughout the ecosystem. So we can see movements, we can see survival rates, and we can see reproductive rates. Because if a female has a calf or if she's lactating or pregnant, we also note that down. So we're basically looking at where within the Terengiri Manyara ecosystem, where are giraffes doing well, where they are not doing well, um, and why. So we're looking at, is it, um, is it association with humans? Is it lion predation? Is it vegetation type? Um, or something else. So we're really trying to understand why giraffe are doing well in some areas or poorly in other areas, and then um, how we can develop effective conservation measures to protect the engines of growth, like the air, identify areas that are important and protect them. And also, we are looking for important areas outside of national parks that might be in need of some protection, uh, and then connecting those areas to the parks through um, wildlife corridors. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you, you, you touched on a lot of, I think, really important points there. And, you know, you, you talk a lot about sort of how iconic, you know, the giraffe is. Um, and then you talk about this sort of precipitous decline that giraffe populations all across Africa have experienced just over the last few decades. Um, and I, I think that's something that, you know, like you say, I mean, a, a, the giraffe is an animal that's instantly recognizable, you know, probably anywhere in the world, but certainly anywhere in the U.S. Um, but most folks in the U.S. have no idea that, uh, you know, wild giraffe populations in Africa are facing such dire threats. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, this this work that you guys are doing, I, I think, is is definitely super important. Um, and, you know, one of the other things that, that sort of, at least I got the sense of, you know, through working on the giraffe video that we produced in collaboration with you guys was that, you know, here's this animal that um, is so iconic and that is so, easy, you know, in, uh, easily recognizable um, all across the planet. But it's also a species that is maybe understudied in the wild, um, which I think is why it's so important that you guys are gathering this sort of uh, baseline data, at least in, 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 in this region. Absolutely, yeah. Surprisingly understudied for such an obvious animal in the ecosystem. So the, in terms of the history of giraffe research, in the 60s and 70s and early 80s, there was um, sort of a burst of research that was done on giraffe in the wild, and then, and then it just kind of died off for several decades. And it's only recently when um, we began to see that giraffe were declining so precipitously around um, all of Africa that um, there's been a resurgence of interest in studying giraffes. And one of the, I think um, partly it's that it's been hard to do really large scale studies of, of giraffe because they're really hard to capture and put a mark on. But now that we know that um, we can recognize them from their patterns, and especially with the um, with the invention of digital photography, 
and pattern recognition software. Now we can do really large scale studies, whereas before, if we wanted to identify them by their spot patterns using photos, you'd have to print out the picture and then use, you know, by eye, you'd have to match the picture from ones you've taken previously. So you can imagine that really that wouldn't be, that wouldn't work for very large samples. But now using this pattern recognition software and digital photography, we come back from our surveys with 2,000 pictures that we then run through this, this program called Wild ID developed at Dartmouth College. And it, that, uh, that program takes about two days to run and match all of our pictures. So we're letting the computer do all the work for us and we are able to track more than 1,500 giraffes around the ecosystem. And in fact, it's the largest demographic study ever done on giraffes ever. Wow. It's the study right here in Tarangire. Yeah, that's amazing. And yeah, what what an amazing sort of intersection of technology and, and sort of the, the huge benefits to wildlife research that, that it can provide. Yeah, fascinating it really is, stuff. Yeah, yeah, because otherwise, you, I mean, you can imagine how expensive and traumatic it would be to have to capture giraffes and put some kind of a mark on them. You know, as you're a wildlife biologist as well. Usually we capture animals and put some kind of mark, whether it's an ear tag or a, a, a band or a ring on a bird, allowing us to individually identify them. And you can get really great information from that. But luckily with giraffes, we don't have to do the capture. We can just take a photograph and it's really easy and non-traumatic and very inexpensive. You just need a car, a camera, a, a computer, and you've got your demography study right there. So, um, and by the way, I wanted to mention too that um, we're doing this, getting this basic um, information about the demography and the movements of giraffe around the Terengiri ecosystem, but we're also working together. Derek is on the um, IUCN's Giraffe and Okapi Specialist Group, and he's working with a couple other scientists on a status assessment for the Maasai giraffe, which is the giraffe um, subspecies that we have in, in Tanzania. And so, as you mentioned, the, there's a misperception in the U.S. that giraffes are not in trouble, that they're doing fine. And a lot of this is because the, currently the IUCN considers them of least concern. So you go to the zoo, you see giraffes, it has a little um, information plaque and you read that they're of least concern. But that's going to change soon because we're working on these individual status assessments of the different subspecies and we're going to be um, changing the status of giraffe soon and then hopefully we'll be able to spread the word that giraffe really are in trouble and, and need our help. Awesome. That's that's good to hear. And um, yeah, it's it's fantastic that, that you guys are working on that. And um yeah, good stuff. So you brought up you brought up sort of an interesting point that that um, is is actually mentioned briefly in the video, the Maasai giraffe as well, which is the issue of all the different subspecies of giraffes. Um, and you, I, I think I remember you mentioning in the video that there are some folks out there that um, actually think that all these different subspecies of giraffes might someday be considered their own separate species. Absolutely, absolutely. Right now, the giraffe is considered one species. Giraffe Camilla portalis. Um, but the genetic work being done, which is still, um, the jury's out, but um, the thought is that there could possibly be as many as six different species of giraffe. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, super neat. And I, I, I'm sure that would have an effect on sort of the approaches that uh, wildlife biologists like yourself take towards, uh, you know, conserving and working with um the giraffe. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But even, you know, even when you break it down into the different species, it does mean that some are, are much more critically endangered. I mean, some, there's only a few hundred left. Right. Others, other, like the Maasai giraffe is the most numerous. It's found in Southern Kenya and um, central to Northern Tanzania. Um, and this is the most numerous, but still, it continues to decline. There's probably about 20,000 or so left. And they're really like so many other wildlife species, just really being pushed into smaller and smaller areas, which are the national parks yeah. and movement between those parks is being obstructed. So even the most numerous of the different subspecies or species, uh, it's still, it's still um, in dire need of protection. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, before we move on to some of the other research programs that um, that we want to talk about here that Wild Nature Institute is involved in, um, maybe you could just sort of give me uh, a quick breakdown of what you guys at the Wild Nature Institute, what, what you've learned uh, thus far um, through the, the work on this draft demography project. 
that you can do. Okay. Yeah, great. So it's um, we have three years of solid data right now. Um, that's three surveys per year. Each survey takes about a month. And so um, we have about nine surveys plus an earlier pilot survey um, of data. So it's a really great data set. And what we found is that there's definitely movement among the different subunits of our study area. So what that means is there's movement in and out of the parks, in and out of um, Tarangire and Lake Minyara National Parks and a nearby ranch conservancy. Um, so they're crossing major roads. They're going through village lands. And we've identified a couple of important calving areas that are outside the parks. And so we want to make sure the next step is then to protect those areas. Um, Lake Minyara National Park, we found, is more isolated than all the other areas. So there's much less movement in and out of Lake Minyara National Park. And this is probably due to a lot of farms and settlement around that park. So that's sort of a highlight that something we need to either um, preserve the last remaining areas that giraffe and other wildlife can move in and out of the park or even reestablish some Connective, uh, air, con connectivity into Lake Minyara National Park or that population may end up just dwindling and, and disappearing altogether. Um, and another interesting thing we found about um, Lake Minyara National Park is that it seems to have relatively high adult survival but low calf survival. So the next step is to try to understand why there is such low calf survival in that park. Um, we have been looking at differences in calf and adult survival over space and time and finding some differences among the different areas. And another aspect of uh, giraffe demography we've been looking at is a newly emerging skin disease that's called <laughs> giraffe skin disease, and it affects the um, backside of their legs. And it's, it forms these crusty lesions. It was first seen in central Tanzania in Ruaha National Park, and it appears to have spread up into Tarangire. And what we found is that Tarangire National Park has um, a very strong prevalence of giraffe skin disease, but there's none in Lake Minyara National Park. So we want to understand why some areas giraffes have this disease and why in other areas they do not. And we've also been able to look at the effects of the skin disease on mortality of giraffes. And unfortunately, we did find that it does appear to increase mortality. So the next step is to work with veterinarians to figure out um, how we might be able to intervene, if possible, um, to do something about this skin disease. It's only, it only was noticed about 10 years ago. So it's an, it's an emerging disease that we really need to understand a little bit more. And we've actually been looking in the Serengeti and in Gorongoro and Arusha National Park, some of the other protected areas in the northern safari circuit to look at um, where, we're, where this disease is prevalent and where it is not and try again to understand um, where it might be more of a problem than other areas. Gotcha, gotcha. Cool. Well, a, a lot of fascinating stuff there. Yeah, so at this point, I'd like to sort of move on to some of the other research projects that Wild Nature Institute is involved in. Um, and uh, I, I see this as just, you know, sort of these other projects, you, you know, you're sort of looking at ungulate conservation as a whole. And obviously giraffes are one species of ungulate. Um, but let's start off by chatting a bit about um, your inspiration for starting the um, what you call the Tungo Project. So how, how does this project work and, and, and what does that, that acronym Tungo stand for? Okay, Tungo stands for the Terengiri Ungulate Observatory. And I'm going to do, a, again, a quick step back and talk about ungulates in general. So ungulates are um, animals with hooves, so hooved mammals. And they're are many, many different kinds of hooved mammals in the East African savanna. For example, in Tanzania alone, there are more than twice as many ungulates as in all of North America, twice as many ungulate species as in all of North America. Wow. Um, so it's, it's a really rich area for ungulates. And for anybody out there that has gone on safari in East Africa, you know that one of the most popular animals to see is, of course, lions. People also love to see leopards and cheetahs, um, aside from, of course, the, the, you know, how wonderful it is to see the ungulates themselves. But these lions, leopards, cheetahs, hyenas, the predators, the scavengers, they would not be there if it weren't for the ungulates. 
The ungulates are critical prey for these predators. Um, also, ungulates are very important in shaping the vegetation. You think about the millions and millions of uh, of grazers that are out there eating the grasses, and through their dung, they're spreading seeds. Um, you have browsers eating the leaves and um, shape, basically creating different shapes of trees. So there's that kind of uh, you know evolutionary arms race between the browsed and the foraged vegetation and then the animals that eat them. And it's, it's basically caused them to look the way they do today. Um, these animals are absolutely critical to the ecosystem, critical um, ecologically. And they're also very important economically um, as, uh, you know, very important for supporting the tourism, um, the safari industry. So um, ungulates in general are really, really cool and really important uh, in the ecosystem. So when we were out there, doing our research on giraffes, we were counting other ungulates to assess the effects of alternative prey on the survival of giraffe calves. So while we're out there driving our fixed root transects looking for giraffes, we were counting all the other ungulates that we came across doing um, a statistical design called um, distance sampling. So when we see a group of ungulates we would, or, or an individual, we would stop and record the species, um, whether it's adult or juvenile, male or female, and we would get a GPS location and then a distance. And in that way, we can estimate the density of the animals based on um, how their detectability, because some animals are more easily detected than others. For example, the giraffe you can see from far away, a dictic, which is a very, very small ungulate, you really only see within a few meters of the road. So you can um, basically account for detectability of that animal and then assess the density of those animals in the different um, areas that we do our work. So we were doing this as part of the giraffe work, and we realized, wow, this is actually a really great data set on its own, and it's giving us really great baseline data for the spatial distribution and the uh, density of ungulates, both in space and time. So we realized that this is, a, this is going to be really important data in general um, to use, and so we started thinking of all these other ways we can um, do habitat associations. Um, over the long term, we'll be able to look at weather patterns and cl climate patterns and how that affects the, um, the spatial and temporal distribution of the animals. So it ended up being, you know, we realized we had some really great data there, so we kind of spun it off into its own project called Tungo. Um, and that's, that's where it came about. Fantastic. So what is, um, maybe you can just tell me real quickly, what does TUNGO stand for? What's that acronym stand for? Tarangire Ungulate Observatory. So the T is for Tarangire, UNG is for ungulate, and O is for observatory. Gotcha. gotcha. And, and I wanted to mention quickly about um, the, the baseline data. So um, as we mentioned, the Terengire ecosystem has a lot of problems with human-wildlife conflict and um, farming and settlements around the parks. So it's fragmented and threatened. So we are working in this ecosystem not only to study the animals but also to try to implement conservation measures. And it's not just us. There's some other folks working on elephant research and trying to maintain corridors for elephants and, of course, um, help uh, stop some of the horrible poaching for ivory that's going on. We have folks working on lions. In this ecosystem, lions are um, obviously there's big human wildlife conflicts with with lions, so they're working on doing lion conservation and protection and um, preventing um, killings, retribution killings of lions. And then we're working on the ungulates. So we've actually kind of all come together as a team, and we're working on trying to to develop and implement conservation measures, including um, protection of corridors and land use planning. So for us to have baseline data before these measures are implemented, we can then determine how well these conservation measures are working to protect our ungulate um, populations in the Terengiri region, which is why it's really great that we have this sort of pre-conservation um, uh, data. Yeah, that's, that's uh, fantastic to hear, you know, and, and a lot of a lot of times, uh, I, I guess a lot of the information that, you know, uh, uh, folks in the U.S. are exposed to um, in relation to conservation programs in Africa. Is, uh, I, I guess a lot of that makes the situation seem really dire, 
you know, for uh, wildlife uh, in in general in in, in Africa. Um, and you know, in in a lot of ways, it is a, a, a very dire situation, right? But it's just it's. Um, it's really great to hear you talking about sort of all these different groups coming together and working together um, to sort of protect this ecosystem as a whole. Um, and the fact that, you know, you guys are working specifically on ungulates, but you're working so closely with all these other groups and all these other individuals that are, uh, you know, uh, working on these conservation uh, uh, programs, looking at these other species. Um, and, and I also love, you know, that this sort of connection that you're making between the importance of collecting this baseline data um, on the conservation of um, these species, right? Because there's no way that you, you know, how are you going to know you know, what steps are necessary to take to preserve ungulates uh, in Tanzania if you don't have this baseline data showing, you know, what's really going on here. Um, so it's, um, yeah, uh, re- really great stuff that, um, that, you, that you're bringing up here. Um, so I guess I am wondering, uh, you know, since you started collecting this baseline data on ungulates um, in the Tarangiri, um, what what have you discovered? What what has the data sort of uh, shown you guys uh, over the past few years? Okay, well, um, so <laughs> the problem of um, the fragmentation and uh, of the Tarangiri ecosystem has been known for quite a while, unfortunately, long before we ever got there. In the 1960s, it was estimated that there were about 10 to 12 different migratory routes for the migratory ungulates in and out of Tarangiri National Park. Um, and they used to actually migrate all the way to the slopes of Mount Meru. Um, really amazing migration that probably rivaled the Serengeti migration. And over the decades, a lot of that has been lost. Now there's only two different migra- migratory routes in and out of Tarangiri National Park that are left. So it is a very dire situation indeed. And so with our research, what we're doing is we're mapping where these animals migrate. Um, we're, we're kind of doing a continuation of work that has been done by previous researchers. Um, one example is Dr. Tom Morrison and Doug Bulger from Dartmouth College, who had some radio collared uh, wildebeests and also did some interesting work looking at um their migration routes in and out of Tarangiri and then across to Lake Manyara and um, across to Lake Manyara National Park. So we're c- continuing on and we're collaborating with these folks on now doing some on the ground mapping of what's left of the migration route. And then we're working on um, protecting these migration corridors in land use plans with the individual villages. So one of the migration routes goes east into the Simanjaro Plains, and there's other organizations that are working on protecting those um, areas and that migration route. Nobody had been doing anything about the northern migration route, which Wildlands did a wonderful documentary for us about this northern route all the way up to Lake Natron. Um, it's one of two remaining, and they go through 10 different villages to migrate up into their the plains um, around the Gilai, around Gilai Mountain. So during the, the rainy season, the wet season, the animals migrate up there to give birth because the grasses are really rich in nutrients, um, it's volcanic soils. So it has really important nutrients that calves need to grow strong bones and, and be healthy. But then in the dry season, there's no water, basically. There's no drinking water, and all of that grass dries up. So they head to Tarangire River, where they have drinking water. And so that's this migration back and forth and back and forth that they do every year. And um, and so the, the northern route was completely unprotected. It still is completely unprotected. And people have known about it for decades, but nothing had been done. So that's why we stepped in. And we are working with these other scientists now to to get some land use planning happening in this area. So that's basically our focus of our research there. We're modeling migration habitat for wildebeest and zebras, um, which will also encompass um, migration habitat for the oryxes and elands and gazelles. And then we're feeding this into the land use planning process to ensure that these areas are protected. But Matthew, I want to mention one beautiful thing, which is that the dominant tribe in this region um, is the Maasai. And the Maasai traditional um, lifestyle is pastoralism, where they just move like the wildebeest do and like the zebra do. They move around with their cattle in search of water and forage. 
So their, their nomadic lifestyle is very similar to this migratory wildlife. And they do not kill the wildlife. They're intent on uh, their cows. So it's a really win-win situation when you work in these villages what we talk about is not only protecting the wildlife migration routes and important calving grounds, but we're talking about protecting an, an age-old traditional lifestyle of the Maasai people. Because when you put farms um, and when you put permanent housing, it also blocks their ability to move around with their cattle and find the forage that they need and find the water they need. So it's a really win-win situation working with the Maasai people and the villages in this area to ensure um, not only wildlife is protected, but also their traditional lifestyle. Fantastic! Yeah, what a what a great example of a situation where you know by taking these measures to help the wildlife, you're also um, helping the Maasai people, the, the people who live in that area, which is fantastic. So you've been uh, sort of attacking this issue of this particular migratory route, um, and you, you do the research, you do the um, the policy work, and you also focus on the education and outreach. Um, so, uh, I mean, I guess it's something um, that, you know, I, I, I guess in the U.S., you know, you, Generally, you think of non nonprofits as like picking one of these particular approaches, you know, being focused on research or focused on environmental policy or focused on education and outreach programs. Um, you guys are really doing it all, which is great. Um, I mean, is that sort of out of necessity um, because of what's going on in that part of the world? Um, or, I mean, did that just sort of come naturally to you? Or was that something where you sort of got into this migration corridor issue and just realized that you really, it was really necessary to approach it from uh, uh, multiple angles? Well, yeah, I think it was the, um, the dire situation for the wildlife and the fact that um, neither Derek nor myself, we are not content with just publishing research results in scientific journals and leaving it at that. Um, it's just that nobody's going to read those journals. Nobody's going to do anything about it, um, especially the local Tanzanian people. So, you know, you can, you can talk about it within the scientific community, but if you don't communicate the problem to local people and the public at large, nothing's ever going to happen, and we can just sit there and steady our animals sliding into extinction. So for both of us, it was always very important to have the activist component as part of what we do. But of course, you need the science as well to to um, show what's going on and to, to um, help you design the necessary steps to to um, protect habitat and protect the wildlife. So um, this, the, one of the things that we did in this area, so, so you talked about the policy, we're doing land use planning. This means kind of nitty gritty, getting down, meeting with villagers and doing land use planning um, through the, the legal land use planning process, educating them about their rights and actually sitting down and writing management plans and making maps and all that. And we are um, starting to make that happen in this um, in the, the 10 villages from Tarangari up to Lake Natron in part of what we're calling the Northern Plains campaign. Um, but another part of that is to do environmental education, to educate the next generation of, of um, people who are going to be living in this area. So, we as scientists are, are studying the animals there, but the local people live with these animals in their backyard every day. And, um, you know, the, these, these people are out with their cows and their goats, and they are face-to-face -face with the wildebeest and the zebras and the gazelles. And so we wanted to do something that celebrates that lifestyle and um, educates them about those animals in their backyard and um, a little bit about why they migrate, understanding ecological concepts, um, and to do it in a way that also promotes literacy. So we, Derek and I noticed that many children um, in our region, they did not have books. And the schools are basically the pauperate of, um, you know, you go into a school here in the U.S. and you have things up on the walls. There's just bookshelves overflowing with books. Um, there's so many resources available um, to open up kids' worlds to, uh, to a lot of other different kinds of worlds and understanding different cultures. And there we noticed you go into a schoolroom um, in one of these school houses up in the, the you know, these, one of these villages, and they have no electricity. There's nothing on the walls. It's just some wooden desks. It's literally like 100 years ago, U.S., the little, you know, schoolhouse out in a rural area. It's really, really basic. 
And um, we noticed they didn't have any fun books. I've got nieces and nephews that read, um, you know, their parents read books to them every single night. They go to the library. Their schools just have so many books they're constantly reading. And here I noticed that they didn't really have that. So we thought one of the perfect ways to give back to the community um, and to also do some environmental education was to make a, a multilingual book about the wildebeest migration. And so we called it The Amazing Migration of Lucky the Wildebeest, and it's a full-color book written in three languages, Maasai, Swahili, and English. And the Maasai came first because that's, that's their tribal language. And there, as far as we knew, we talked to a lot of people, there's never been a children's book written in Maasai. So that was really fun. It, it was a, a long process um, to get it translated and everything, but um, it's a really fun story. The protagonist is a baby wildebeest, and it, he's born or she, she's born on the plains um, around Lake Natron, and it explains why she and her friends and her mother um, need to migrate down to Tarangiri and what are some of the animals they meet along the way and what are some of the challenges. Her mother steps into a snare from a poacher, but she gets freed. They have to cross a big dangerous road. So it's educating um, the local people about why these animals migrate and what are the challenges they face along the way and why is it important to, to protect them. And we distributed 2,500 of the books to uh, 10 rural school uh, schools up in the migration corridor. It was very well received. It was really, really fun, a very fun um, project to do. And it's still, um, it's, we still have more books to deliver. Uh, so that's been a really fun, a really fun way that we've been able to educate about migration and, um, and then also be able to um, get into these communities and talk with the people about what their issues are in, uh, in, in the, Lot bigger picture land use planning process. That's that's fantastic, and 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 I'll just say that um, I got my copy of uh, of the book uh, just a few weeks ago and um, read it read it to my one year old, and and he really enjoyed it. I think, um, and it's it's it it is it's just a really enjoyable book, you know. And like like we've sort of been talking about, <clears throat> and like we talked about specifically with. Um, uh, the giraffe issue, you know, uh, there, there's a lot of exposure within our culture to um, African megafauna, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, there's there's giraffes on everything, you know, and especially, you know, uh, uh, for me, having a one-year-old son, you know, uh, all of all of his pajamas, you know, all of the books, <laughs> right. you know, there's, there's giraffes and African and elephants and, you know, all these species of African megafauna are just ever present. Right. But there's very few um, books or resources out there for young kids that really give a, 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 a true and I think like educational perspective um, on these animals and, you know, what they deal with um, in their natural habitat. And you guys really struck uh, uh, I think a perfect balance, you know, between getting that important information across, but making it appealing to um, to young kids, which is fantastic. Uh, okay. um, and and I'll just say, um, you know, if, if if folks are who are listening are interested in uh, getting a copy of the book, you guys have the books for sale on your website, um, wildnatureinstitute.org. And if you buy a copy of the book, then you guys. Um, you're you're also buying you know in addition to buying your own copy you're also buying a copy for um, to be distributed in uh, those Maasai villages is that correct? Correct, absolutely. So Thank you. Yeah, so definitely go you know uh, uh, get onto the Wild Nature Institute website and and we'll have links um, to that in the show notes for this episode. Um, it's definitely a book that's worth checking out. You know if if you have uh, a, a young kid yourself or if you you know, nieces or nephews, it, it, it would make a great gift. Um, and you're also, you know, uh, helping out the kids in, in these Maasai villages and helping them learn more about this migratory path that's right in their backyard and how important it is to preserve it. So really. Thanks. Uh, yeah. I yeah, and we designed it to be um, fun for children all the way up to adults. So for, for people of all ages. Yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. And now you can also learn, and your son can hopefully learn how to speak Ma and Swahili. Yeah, yeah. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, so I, I want to talk just a bit about um, the importance for you and for the Wild Nature Institute of working with uh, local Tanzanian folks uh, on 
uh, I mean, both your research projects, but also the education and outreach. You know, why is it so important to um, uh, to to be you know to to get these folks uh, involved in sort of all components of um, what you guys are doing? You know, both the research, uh, the policy, and the the outreach and education. Right. Um, it, protection of wildlife isn't going to happen without the input of the local people. It just isn't. They're the, they're the people that are living with the animals day in and day out. And um, by the same token, they should be the ones to benefit financially or economically from the presence of those wildlife. So um, we really think it's absolutely critical to work with the local folks to, um, to share information not only do we have important information as scientists that we're learning from our underground research, but the local folks have a lot of really important information about where they see wildlife, where they used to see wildlife, what changes have happened over time, especially from these, these elders. Um, they have a lot of information to share, a lot of traditional ecological knowledge that can be very useful for um, designing conservation measures. Um, so they have knowledge. They also need to see some economic benefit from the wildlife because these are the people that do have their crops raided. Um, they do have conflicts with wildlife every day. They have lions that can sometimes threaten their livestock. Um, so they need to see some other kind of benefit from the wildlife um, that will inspire and encourage them to want to protect them because the, a lot of these people are in poverty. And so I think having some kind of ecotourism uh, would be very, very important. And you're seeing that happen. But we need to devolve the, um, the economic benefit of the wildlife from the federal government down to the local people. And that's one of the things that we're trying to do right now um, with these land use plans and getting local villages to make agreements with lodges and tourism companies. Um, so that's important. Um, and it just, again, it's not going to happen. None of this conservation is going to happen with a, without the buy-in from the local people. You can, you can talk all you want about how important wildlife are, but when they're the ones, you know, the, the folks that are going in there and poaching, um, or when they're paving over habitat, um, blocking migration routes, then um, that's not going to, it just isn't going to work without them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. As as much as I hate to to sort of end this episode on on a sad note, I I, I guess I just want to mention that um, you know for folks who saw the um, the 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 film that we produced with Wild Nature Institute about uh, dealing with this uh, Terengire migration corridor that we've been chatting uh, with, you know, almost all the dialogue in that comes from um, the Wild Nature Institute partner Robert Mallell, who. Um, tragically died uh, soon after that video was released. Um, and, I, you know, e even though I never met him, you know, I spent so much time with that footage and, and, and watching him, and, and I, I really felt like I, I got to know him. Um, and so I guess, um, I mean, we, we certainly don't have to dwell on this for, for too long, but I guess I'm just wondering sort of, you know, how, how his death affected the Wild Nature Institute and, and um, you know, uh, you know, was it difficult to sort of press on with your research after after this? Yeah, it was very difficult. Um, his name was Robert Godson Mallell. He had worked with Tom Morrison on the wildebeest research, and then segued into working with us uh, on our giraffe and tungo work. And um, he did pass away tragically. And not a day doesn't go by that we don't think about him. And um, he was. I have to say, one of the handful of Tanzanians who truly, deeply cared about the wildlife and about conservation, he understood. He used to say to people that conservation was the seed and tourism was the harvest. He used to work in tourism, but then he moved into doing conservation work because he understood that you had to conserve in order to get um, the benefits of, of, um, of tourism, the financial benefits. You had to have the conservation, and he understood that, and he talked to people about that. He really had a great way with words, and as you can see from in the movie, The Forgotten Migration, he, he really did um, have a, a wonderful way of expressing things, and we think about him all the time. We think about him all the time. And he actually did the translation into Swahili and Maasai for the book. So um, 
you know, every time I look at that book, I think about him. And we are inspired to continue on with this work um, that he cared about so much. So, um, so here's to Robert Godson Millel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's cer- certainly, certainly missed. So, just as sort of on as a final note, um, I guess I'm wondering um, if there's anything that you can share <clears throat> um, that folks who might be listening to this in the U.S. Um, if there's anything that that those folks could do to um, help ungulate conservation efforts in in East Africa. I know this is this is sort of a difficult, you know, question, something that we struggle with, you know, I mean, uh, you know, these issues seem so uh, far separated from, you know, our daily lives here in the United States. Um, so I guess I'm wondering if there's anything that you could point to that um, folks here in the U.S. could do to, to help forward these uh, conservation goals that the Wild Nature Institute is working towards. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So I think the first step, of course, is just knowing. So um, knowing what's going on, being aware, and helping to spread the word. As we talked about, a lot of people don't realize um, how precipitously giraffes are declining. So we want to change that. We want people to know about what's going on. And even if you don't have you know, money to donate to a cause, maybe by talking about it, getting a buzz going, um, you pick up the ear of somebody that does have money that can make a donation. Uh, another thing is our our government, the American government, actually has a lot of influence over the Tanzanian government. And um, we have recently made great efforts to um, to improve anti-poaching in Tanzania, which affects not only elephants, but also the ungulates. So, um, so if you get the buzz going, you get the ear of maybe um, some people from our government, you encourage them to influence the Tanzanian government to um, increase and buff, buffer, uh, buff up efforts for anti-poaching. Um, and just, just talking about it, um, you know, whatever small things that you can do. And another thing is, it's not just ungulates in East Africa that are in trouble, of course. It's our very own ungulates. We have great migrations in the United States. We have um, the caribou up in Alaska that are threatened by uh, oil drilling. Um, you know, we have pronghorn. Um, so we have our very own ungulates here as well that need our help. So just recognizing recognizing the importance of ungulates in all the ecosystems in which they occur and um, and working towards conservation is going to be something that our children will thank us for. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, thanks a lot, Monica, for coming onto the program and sharing all of this uh, fantastic information about the, the really important work that the Wild Nature Institute is doing in, in East Africa. Um, it, it was great chatting with you. And uh, yeah, we're looking forward to continuing to work with the Wild Nature Institute on more projects moving forward. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to um, be involved in uh, working on that, that follow-up video that we've been talking about to the Forgotten Migration and yeah. to sort of delve into um, the uh, sort of the details of the education and outreach and also policy um, work that you guys have been doing to to protect that that critical mi- migration corridor. Thank you, Matthew and Wildlands. You guys do such incredible work, and it is such an honor and a privilege privilege to be working with you. Well, thanks a lot, Monica. And uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll uh, find an opportunity in the not too distant future to get you and and uh, and Derek back on the program here. So thanks a lot. Okay, thanks, Matthew. Bye bye. All right, that was our conversation with Monica Bond from the Wild Nature Institute. One thing that really comes through in this interview is the absolute dedication that Monica has to the preservation of both the ecosystems and the human communities in this region of Tanzania. Monica and the Wild Nature Institute co-founder Derek Lee have really invested every part of themselves into achieving these goals that they've laid out for themselves, and they're starting to see very real positive impacts resulting from these efforts. East Africa is truly a mecca for wildlife biologists, as Monica mentioned in the interview. But these days, it often seems like all of the news that we're getting from this part of the world is doom and gloom. And it's very refreshing to hear about research and conservation efforts that are truly having a positive impact on both the wildlife and human communities in this area. 
So as I mentioned in the interview, definitely check out the show notes for this episode where we'll have links to the Wild Nature Institute website where you can order your own copy of The Amazing Migration of Lucky the Wildebeest, which is the kids book that Derek and Monica were involved in producing. Um, And you can order a copy for yourself. Um, And of course, when you buy a copy for yourself, you're also buying a copy to be distributed to the villages that lay along the Terengiri Migration Corridor, which is, of course, the most critical region for spreading this important message that's presented in the book. You can find those show notes at wildlensinc.org slash blog slash EOC6. That's wildlensinc.org inc.org slash blog slash EOC6. And of course, be sure to subscribe to our companion video podcast, where we'll be releasing the first two short films that we produced in collaboration with the Wild Nature Institute, Uh, The Forgotten Migration, where you can see footage from the Migration Corridor, um, will be released alongside this episode. Um, So be sure to check that out as well. Thanks to everyone for listening. This is your host, Matt Podolsky, signing off.